John 16, verses 16 through 24. Follow along as I read. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does, this, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the, word, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. How faithful you are to us to bring us to the end now of another year as a church. How many ten thousands of prayers have risen from this people. You have met our needs. Your mercies have been new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Some have weathered the hardest times in their lives, and others are in the middle of those, and others have been soaring on wings like eagles. And you have been faithful in it all. And now I pray, O oh God, that you will carry and you will bear, that you will awaken in this church a spirit of prayer that will not be for a week but for 52 weeks until we do this again. Use me now, please, to be faithful to your word and to release its power in awakening this kind of devotion to daily, regular, disciplined, joyful Christ-dependent, God-glorifying prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. My preparations took a surprising turn as I was getting ready for this message. Um, this is the first of prayer week. We go over the next seven, eight days. And so I resolved I would preach on prayer, as I have done for the last 20 seven years or so, 
at the beginning of every year and the end of every year. We're in the Gospel of John, and so I said, well, let's, let's build it in John, so you just stay here. And so that's what we're going to do. And, and what I did not count on was that as the Through the Bible in a Year program drew to an end on the 25th, we would be reading Zechariah and then Malachi, and I would meet such a verse as would shake me up in the way I would think about praying. So that was the surprising turn, and you will see when we get there that it wasn't what I was going to expect. But for now, if I were to retitle this message, which I did, and uh, it will be uh, on the manuscript different than it is in the worship folder, I would entitle it, Put in the Fire for the Sake of Prayer. But that doesn't mean anything to you yet because you haven't read the verse in Zechariah and you don't even know what verse I'm talking about and I'm not going to tell you until the, the time when we get there unless it had the same impact upon you that it did on me, and you probably underlined it and circled it then, and you would know where it is. So my goal in this message, as always in the first weekend of prayer week, is to so speak from God's Word that you would be stirred up to engage in earnest, serious, disciplined, joyful, Christ-dependent, God-glorifying prayer all year long, that this would be, 2009, would be so far in your life the best year of prayer you've ever known. I mean, who would not want that? I mean, can you imagine saying, well, I had a good year in 54, or I had a good year in uh, 92. I wouldn't want it to get better. Well, yes, you would. So let's pray. Let's all of us pray. This will be, this will be the best year so far. And then that would happen every year. It would just get better and better forever. That's the way I've been signing off on my Christmas cards and thank yous. John, Gospel of John has three main passages about prayer. John sketches his Picture portrait of the prayer life in three passages, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. And then there's a long prayer of Jesus in 17. We won't go there. We'll just talk about the texts that were addressed to the disciples. And we'll try to get the big picture. We're not going to do really nitty gritty exegesis. We're going to get the big prayer picture from the gospel of John. That's my my goal. So I want to read these three passages with you. First one's in John 14, verse 13, following, and then John 15, verse 7, then John 16, 23. I'm going to read them with you, and then we'll make some comments, step back, get the big picture, make some practical applications, and then be hit between the eyes by Zechariah. Chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This is Jesus talking that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's number one. Number two, John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. And then drop down to verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And finally, chapter 16, verse 23 and 24, starting in the middle of verse 23 of John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever you ask, whatever you ask in uh, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Those are John's three main passages on prayer. So let's take them one at a time and just briefly sketch the picture of prayer in these passages. First, chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, Jesus connects our praying with the glory of God and with his own role as mediator between man and God. So let's read verse 13. You'll see that. Whatever you ask in my name, that's where I get this idea of mediator. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified. So you see the two things that I'm highlighting, the mediator role of Jesus, you can only come in my name, and the point of prayer is the glory of God. So the reason Jesus' name is used is because we have no rights to go to God except through Jesus. If you try to go to God apart from Jesus, you may be incinerated. God is very dangerous apart from Jesus. He's angry apart from Jesus. He has put Jesus Christ forward to remove his anger and to clothe us with righteousness so that we can walk right into the flame of his holiness and not be consumed. Jesus is the only hope that any prayer will ever be heard. So we come in Jesus' name. Teach your children what it means to pray in Jesus' name. This is not a throwaway phrase. Everything hangs on this phrase. It means in the name of the one in whose worth, in whose righteousness, in whose sacrifice we come and no other way. And that's true. Not only for our salvation, but for our supplication. You all know we're saved through Jesus and you should know we pray through Jesus. And they really are the same mediator role. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Don't come any other way. I am troubled when people feel like for the escape from mindless tradition, we just leave off in Jesus' name from our prayers and say nothing except amen. You don't have to say it, but you better think it. And if you're thinking it, wouldn't hurt to say it. So that I know you're thinking it. And not going in any other way. It's not a throwaway phrase. It's not tradition. It's right out of that verse. And it's massively important that we come in Christ alone to ask the Father for favor. 
We won't get it any other way. Second thing to see in verse 13 is that God is glorified in answering prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the aim of prayer is the glory of God. God is the giver. Christ is the mediator. And when they team up, going through Christ and God being recognized as the giver, God, the Father and the Son, get glory. That's the point of prayer. Which, and this is very important, explains why there doesn't have to be any other qualifier of the word whatever. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And we wonder, you really mean that? What do you mean by whatever? I don't think it works like that. That's, our, that's the way we read this verse. What do you mean, Whatever. What God, the Son, Jesus Christ, has done by ending this verse by saying, this is all that the Father may be glorified, is to make prayer radically God-exalting and God-centered. And that's the flavor, the guardian around the word whatever. Because you can all think of prayers that you could ask that won't glorify God if they get answered. I'll give you a few. God, please make me more important than you are. God, please wipe the Jewish people off the planet, or black people, or white people. Choose your hatred, but support me in it, God. Because I hate these people, and I want them killed. Try that one. Or, God, please make pornography godly. One day a week. Or, God, please blind the IRS to all the times that I've lied on my tax returns. Or, God, please put my competitor out of business. And on and on and on, prayers that you can think of to stick in whatever wouldn't glorify him. I don't think he needed to qualify the word whatever at the front end because the whole point of the back end of the verse comes like a truck saying, I'm guarding this word whatever here. This is all about my glory here. Every prayer you make should have the implicit meaning, hallowed be thy name. If you pray a prayer and do not implicitly mean, hallowed be your name, it's not a God-honoring prayer. Even if it's, please help me find a parking place. I'm okay with that. If you're on task with the mission to glorify God. Whatever is protected in this verse from foolish, godless, 
selfish, God-dishonoring prayers. Let's go to chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now here the qualification is explicit. If you abide in me and if my words abide in you, that's the qualification. Then your prayers will be heard. I don't think that's an all-or-nothing statement. I think it's a matter of degrees. In other words, nobody, no sinner on this earth ever has the words of Jesus dwelling in him so perfectly, so completely, so transformingly, so controllingly, controllingly that he always prays according to the will of God. That's the goal. If my words abide in you, abide in you, take root in you, live in you, shape you, govern your prayer life, bring to mind all those things that would be pleasing to me, then ask what you will. Nobody ever experiences the Word of God that fully. But we should go for it. Oh, how the words of Christ should live in us. How we, sh- how we should immerse ourselves in the Gospels and in the New Testament so that our mind is transformed and we can discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, and our prayers would be in accord with His will and we would see God move in power according to our pleadings. Then, verse 8 links the praying of verse 7 with the glory of God in fruit-bearing. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. It seems that the answers to prayer in verse 7 are the prayers that mainly give rise to fruit-bearing. And thus glorify God. Ask whatever you wish, And it will be done for you. That's verse 7. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So evidently the the asking is about fruit. Like, make me more loving. Make me more kind. Make me more patient. Make me more self-controlled. And make me a winner of those who will become kind and loving and patient and merciful and meek and self-controlled. Oh, make me fruit-filled and fruit-bearing. That's the kind of prayers that it seems like are flowing into verse 8, where it says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. Now, go to verse 16 and watch how this is underlined. This is remarkable. You've got you to put your attentive brain on. Switch on to see this. It's really here, but you might miss it if you don't look closely. 
You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's the link with verse 8. Prayer is yielding fruit bearing and God is getting glory through fruit bearing. And then I appointed you. This is your mission. Go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So what he's saying so far in verse 16 is I've, I've got you on a mission here. And your mission is go bear fruit. And I think that's become fruitful and get others to become fruitful. And the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. And getting other people to love Jesus and become like that too. Just one big, great, fruitful life. That's your mission. As you enter 2009, you got a mission. You're on the planet for a purpose. To be fruit-filled and fruit-bearing. Now, the rest of the verse has an interesting connection. The reason given for this mission is so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's amazing. You get the connection? It's really strange. It's not hard, but it's surprising. Paraphrase it. I'm putting you on a mission. I have chosen you to go bear fruit. Why? So that your prayers get answered. Which simply confirms verse 8. Prayer is about fruit bearing. <laughs> have you ever, I don't know if you ever read a Piper book on prayer. I've got this little picture that I love to use all the time. I wear it out. I haven't used it for a long time, so I'll use it now again. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the thermostat. Got that? It is a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. You try to turn this into a domestic intercom to bring another pillow, it malfunctions. And you wonder why. It's not made to be an intercom. It's made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. I'm getting it straight out of verse 16. I chose you. I got a mission for you. And it isn't another pillow. It isn't thermostat changes. It's fruit bearing. At Cass Lake and Azerbaijan and San Diego, it's fruit bearing. Where you are, in your family, in your personality, more fruit in 2009. i got a mission for you. So that the walkie-talkie will work. Because that's what it's designed for. If you wonder why it might not be working, just ask, am I on mission? It works on mission. That's what it's for. It's for change and power. It's for fighting the devil. It's for putting yourself in really hard circumstances where you can't manage it. And you're crying out to God. That's what it's for. You don't need to ring up the general to bring in the air cover if you've got one wounded shoulder to pick off. Soldier to pick off. You just, if you can manage this, you won't pray. Okay, that was 
verse 16. Number three, chapter 16. One more. Truly, start in the middle of verse 23 of John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Till now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive. Now, here's the new piece. That your joy may be full. So everything we've said so far in the other two passages, you should bring here. I think John wants us to read his book like that. Learn something here, bring it to 15. Learn something in 15, bring it to 16. Don't leave it all behind and ask the same old questions over and over and over again. Okay, we got some help with that in chapter 15. We got some help with that in chapter 14. Bring that here. But now we got a new thing. Prayer is for your joy. Prayer is for your joy. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So here's my question. What's the connection between the emphasis on the glory of God being the goal in chapter 14 and 15 and my joy being the goal in chapter 16? What's the connection? And I would put it like this. Um, If we find our joy in seeing God's glory and in manifesting it for others to see and be amazed and converted and sanctified by, if if our joy rises when we see the glory of God and when we spread the glory of God, then He will be glorified in our joy and our joy will go up when He's glorified. Works both ways. God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him. And when you're most satisfied in Him and He's most glorified in you, it goes the other way as well. He gets more glory when you're satisfied in Him. And you get more satisfaction when He's exalted and His glory is shown. And there's no contradiction here between these two. It is for your joy, because God gets glory in answering prayer, and you delight in His glory. Why wouldn't you be happy if God is made the center of prayer? Because that's where your joy is. It's in Him, not in what you got for Christmas, is it? Those are just pointers. So summarize in these, these three texts. The goal, I think, is that Jesus is calling you and me to serious, earnest, joyful, Christ-dependent, God-glorifying prayer in 2009. Jesus is the mediator. There's only one. And God's glory is meant to be exalted in it all. So let me give you a few practical suggestions. These are growing out of my life and out of my reading of the Bible, just three brief practical suggestions because we're not doing as well as we should. Now, suggestion number one in your life of prayer for 2009, set aside a time and a place each day and don't leave it to chance. Set aside a time 
and a place each day and don't leave it to chance. The devil defeats most praying before it happens because we didn't make a plan. If you don't plan, believe me. Oh, I have been at this a long time and the devil hates me and my prayer life like you wouldn't believe how many good things keep me from praying. Not sin. Sin does not keep me from praying. Righteousness keeps me from praying. Answering holy emails and other holy things. And just checking out one more piece of relevant news to pray about at whatever news service you click on. It's not evil that keeps us from praying. It's good things, and he is shrewd to the bottom. So pick a place and pick a time and show up. Number two, I suggest that you combine your praying with reading the Bible and that you take what you read in the Bible and you turn it into prayer. Because your brain, if it's a typical human brain, will have a very hard time holding a train of thought while you pray with no help from the Bible. Try it for just 10 minutes without your brain flipping out onto the dust you see on the Venetian blinds. <laughs> just try it. He is wicked in his goodness. Needs to be dusted. Wouldn't be sin to get up and dust it. Would it? Use the Bible and turn the Bible into prayer. Read, pray, read, pray, read, pray, read, pray as long as you want to or can. That's number two. Number three. I suggest that you pray in concentric circles. You can either pray from the outside in or the inside out. And what I mean by concentric circles is I'm the most needy spiritual person I know. At least I know my sins better than I know anybody else's. So I pray about me a lot. Have mercy upon me. Convict me. Kill me. Change me. Guard me, humble me, destroy those aspects of me. I pray about me a lot because of how sinful I am. And then you move out from me to my family. Pray about Noel, pray about Talitha, all my sons, all my daughters-in-law, all my grandchildren. That's another circle. Then I move out from there to the staff. I can name the staff and the elders. And then I move out to you, the church. And then I move out from there to the wider movement of Christ around the world, our missionaries and the whole global cause of Christ. And then I move out from there to the political, historical arena of the, of the world. I, I generally don't play about, pray about galaxies or anything like that, but my, my universe, as far as prayer goes, stops pretty much at the planet. <laughs> I don't pray for the devil or angels. I don't see any reason for doing it in the Bible. So, or you could go the other direction, move from, move from the outside in, just whatever. And at every, every one of those concentric circles, if you wonder, why don't you put God at the middle? It's because he's in every circle. And the main point of every circle is, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And only then do you get to, give me some bread, 
today. Three big, massive, your name hallowed, your kingdom arriving, your will on the planet done the way it's done in heaven and in my life. Those are in every circle. That's why he's not anywhere in the concentric circles. So those are my three suggestions. The hard truth is we um, Christians don't do very well. We've done some surveys over the years at Bethlehem. It's pretty, pretty sad when we do them. I don't like to do them. I get discouraged. We don't pray very much. Pray at meals, maybe, unless we, we're still stuck at the adolescent stage that thinks good habits are legalism. We may whisper prayers before a tough meeting that we're walking into. We, we may throw him a kiss as we crawl into bed. But we don't, we don't set aside significant, regular, daily, disciplined time to pray in those ways much. And we don't think it's worth it to meet with others to pray by and large. And we wonder, why, why is my faith weak? Why is my hope feeble? Why is my passion for Christ small? And meanwhile, across these rooms, the devil is whispering in your ear, some of you. The pastor's getting legalistic now. He's moving into the legalistic phase of the sermon. He's starting to use guilt now. He's uh, getting the law out now. That's what he's saying. To which I say, to hell with the devil and all of his destructive lies. Be free! Bethlehem. Is intentional, regular, disciplined, earnest, Christ-dependent, God-glorifying, joyful prayer a duty? A discipline? Do I go to prayer meetings Tuesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Friday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Tuesday mornings or Saturday meeting? Do I do that because it's a duty out of discipline? Well, you could call it that. It's a duty the way it's a duty for a scuba diver to put on his air tank before he goes underwater. It's a duty the way pilots should listen to air traffic controllers. It's a duty the way soldiers in combat should clean their rifles and load their guns. It's a duty the way hungry people eat food. It's a duty the way thirsty people drink water. It's a duty the way a deaf man puts on his hearing aid. It's a duty the way a diabetic takes his insulin. 
It's a duty the way Pooh Bear looks for honey. It's a duty the way pirates look for gold. So you call it duty if you want. It is like that. I hate the devil. I hate the way he is killing some of you by persuading you it's legalistic to do regular, set-aside, disciplined praying. I hate the devil and the way he's killing you. Telling you that it is legalistic to be as regular in your prayers as you are in eating your food, in sleeping, in internet use. Oh, we struggle with those, don't we? Legalistic to eat three times a day. I think it is. Sleep every night, for goodness sakes. Mix it up. (laughs) He is laughing up his sleeve at how easy he can take out Christians. The devil is. He is laughing up his sleeve at what suckers we are for his worn out this is legalism you should just look at him and say I'm older than that I'm not in fifth grade anymore I've grown up a little bit get out of my life I've got work to do because I am a sinner in desperate need of talking to my king every day. And my sin inclines me to leave it over and over. If I don't set a time and a place, I'm a goner. Let's talk to the devil. Give him some information. He might leave you alone for a while. Probably not. Folks, God has given us means of grace. You know that phrase? God has given us means of grace. If we don't use the means of grace, like praying, to the fullest advantage, our complaints against him will not stick. It's amazing to me how many people get in God's face with complaints when they haven't done it. What kind of courtroom is this? When God can be put in the dock by sinners who don't even use the means of grace He gives us. Amazing. Amazing. If we don't eat, we starve. If we don't drink, we die of thirst. If we don't exercise a muscle, it atrophies. If we don't breathe, we suffocate. And just as there are physical means of life, there are spiritual means of grace. It's so simple. And you, so many of you are trying to live your life without breathing, eating, drinking, exercising. And you wonder, what's wrong? It's your fault. It's fault. Okay, Zechariah. You know where that book is? Second from the last book of the Old Testament. If you go to the end of the Old Testament and flip back about four pages, you'll be there. Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. And we'll, we'll wrap it up here with this. 
What did I get hit with in Zechariah that gave this message the twist it's now getting? On prayer. I don't think I'd ever seen this before. This is a, a, a couple of verses about God's school of prayer. If, if you're not praying the way you should, then probably he's going to sign you up for this. So let's start at verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. So stop there. Don't worry about when this happens in history right now. Just leave that one aside. Just look at how God works. So he he takes the whole, and two-thirds of them perish. They They get wiped out. And God saves a third. So you're in that third if you're a Christian. Just symbolically, you're in that third. God's remnant, faithful, imperfect, weak, lousy prayers, he saved them. Now, what's God's remedy for their weaknesses? Verse 9, what's his school of prayer? Verse 9, and I will put this third into the fire. And refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. So now notice carefully what's happening, because this is surprising. In his great love, he rescues them from the whole, and he includes them in his elect third. Symbolically third. He's got a, a third now. He loves them. He saved them. He didn't let them perish. And then he takes his, his loved ones, his cherished, the apple of his eye, and he puts them in the fire. Why? Now, this is normal Christianity. I think, well, that's the Old Testament. He doesn't do that anymore. Listen to 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's crystal clear. This is normal, not strange Christianity. God rescues us from hell and puts us in fire. Got that? That is normal Christianity. God rescues us from the flames of hell and puts us into refining flames. Why? Now, I don't want all the answers from all over the Bible. I just want the answer from verse 9, and it's crystal clear, and it's simple, and narrow, and small, and big, and huge, and glorious. It's about prayer. So let's finish reading verse 9. I will test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. That's all. Nothing about getting their sex lives burned clean. Nothing about getting their money mismanagement burned clean. Nothing about getting their power struggles and relational mess-ups fixed. Just, then they'll call on me. Then I'll answer. God puts us in the fire to awaken earnest prayer. Please, this is a plea now. I'm pleading with you. I'm almost done. I'm pleading with you. Do n- this, this verse is in the Bible 
to help this plea that I'm about to make to you come true. This verse is in the Bible so that the plea that I'm about to make to you will come true. I can't make it come true. This verse, by God's grace, with his power, can make this come true. I plead with you not to be among the number who get sent to this school, which is designed to awaken prayer, and the school becomes the very reason you abandon prayer. Thousands go to this school and turn on prayer. If he treats me like this, I'm not going to ask him for anything because I asked him to keep me out of this and he didn't do it. And the very school designed to produce depth, trust, God-focused, man-diminishing, worshipful prayer is turned on its head and the school is hated. And I'm pleading with you. This verse is in the Bible to help that not happen. That's why it's here. So that when you look around you and the flames are burning and you wonder, God, what's up? This is up. This is up. Don't don't teach him how to teach. Submit. Let me close with a quote from John Calvin. I read Calvin on this text because next year is his 500th birthday. So I'm poking around in Calvin a lot these days. This is what he said, and it's more true today than it was when he wrote it. It is therefore necessary that we should be subject from first to last to the scourges of God. Scourges of God, the fire. In order that we may, from the heart, call on Him. For our hearts are enfeebled by prosperity. So that we cannot make an effort to pray. If that's not the American church, I don't know what is. We are enfeebled by prosperity so that we can scarcely make the effort to pray. Because so many other good things, prosperous things, right things, fill our powerless lives. So, would you resolve with me that this simply will not happen to you? In 2009. This meaning our hearts are enfeebled by by prosperity so that we cannot make the effort to pray. Would you resolve with me? That's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. Whatever it takes. I'm not going to be enfeebled by my prosperity. I will put in place whatever it takes. And may the Lord be gentle with us in the fires of 2009 because they will come. I hope 
you don't turn on him when they come. Let's pray. Father, I want to be a better man of prayer in 2009. And if it takes fire, let there be fire. I join with the other saints in these rooms. I join with them to say, before I become useless in my worldliness, take me out. Kill me. And while I live, grant that the fiery trials that you ordain would not embitter me, but deepen me in my prayer life. Make me know what it really is to walk with you, talk with you, commune with you at levels that could never happen on the breezy, bright days. And I pray that not only for myself, but for all your people. Come. Make 2009 the prayer week and all year long the best year of praying that we have ever known so far. I ask this in Jesus' mighty name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen.